I smoke. Uh, if this bothers anyone, I recommend you looking around the world in which we live and shutting your fucking mouth. Uh, weird, man. People say the dumbest things, too. Hey, you quit smoking. You get your sense of smell back. I live in New York City. I don't want my fucking sense of smell back. <laughs> Is that urine? <laughs> I think I smell a dead fella. Where's that coming? Look, honey, a dead fella. I found him. Thank God I quit smoking. I can find dead fellas in urine puddles. <laughs> Ooh, I love living in New York. I'll smoke, I'll cough, I'll get the tumors, I'll die. Deal? <laughs> Thank you, America. People say, well, it's not that. It, 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 it's the secondary smoke. It's not just the smoke that you smoke, but the smoke that comes out of you. That's called secondary smoke. And that's not good smoke just because it came out of you. Shut the fuck up right now. God damn it, if I don't smoke, there's gonna be secondary bullets coming your way. I love when people in New York City complain about your smoking. Isn't that great? Yeah. These people are standing ankle deep in dog links, straddling a dead guy, you know? Apparently my cigarette's fucking up the delicate balance of nature here. Oh, this is bothering you. Oh, I'm sorry. Let me go over here to this pile of bum dung and put this out. There we go. Restore New York to that pristine state we know it exists in. If it weren't for my god-awful cigarette. Why do they insist on making that announcement that it's a non-smoking flight? You know, I mean, there's nobody in this building who was alive when smoking was allowed on airplanes. Nobody. Why do they still, and it's always a reminder, just a reminder, this is a non-smoking flight. All of our flights are non-smoking. And also another reminder, this is a non-slavery flight. There'll be no slavery on this flight at all. And uh, the captain has informed me to let you know that the Earth rotates around the sun and not the other way around. Certainly haven't been smoking in a bar in California. That's Because you can't. No, no smoking in bars now, and soon no drinking and no talking. Be careful, California. You're supposed to be the crazy state, the out there wild ones, you know? In Scandinavia, no hotel in fucking Sweden. I've been to it in the last year. No, it's all non-smoking. No, 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 because it's a secondary smoke, isn't it? It's a secondary smoke. Yes, yeah, it's what we should be worried about. It's very... <laughs> you know, because, you know, scientists, experts and researchers have done, you know, research and discovered that the secondary smoke... Very big issue for me, I think, about the future of the human race and what's happening in the world today. Secondary smoke's a real issue for me. <laughs> Secondary smoke. I'm not, I'm not particularly worried about the fact that recently the two most powerful nations illegally invaded a Middle East country under false pretenses so that it could steal their natural resources and implement permanent military bases to start more theatres of conflict so that it could implement a third world war to create a planetary fascist police state. It's secondary smoke that is it's a real problem for me. You know. Because, you know, sometimes when you go out, your clothes get smelly, don't they? And then you have, then you have to wash them when you get back. I mean, that's a real chore for my existence, you know. I'm worried about I'm not worried about the fact that the World Bank or the IMF go into third world countries, put them into unfathomable debt so it can steal their natural resources, destroy the culture and implement them into the global banking system. It's secondary smoke. That's... It's everywhere, and you know, I didn't choose to smoke, and I could be affected. Really? There's people from Chernobyl still alive, for fuck's sake.
They look weird, but they're still here. And now we make them smoke outside. Belmont, California is home to a tough new anti-smoking law and a tough old smoker. Edith Fredrickson came here from Germany 40 years ago and has been smoking two packs a day even longer. But now in Belmont, it's illegal for her to light up inside her own home. She's going to have to smoke outside where everybody else smokes. City Council member Coralyn Firebach pushed Belmont's new law banning smoking inside apartments and condos to protect neighbors. Overwhelming evidence shows that secondhand smoke is dangerous. Even for even a few, few, few seconds, seconds. So we don't want to be around anybody that smokes. Cops don't go around peeking in apartment windows here, but if neighbors complain about someone smoking next door, Fredrickson says what she does in her own apartment is no one else's business. I don't know what to do. I mean, maybe she'll move. For now, Fredrickson seems immovable. She won't admit to breaking the law, but she fumes. Just try to catch her. Well, I think that almost in every case study that there is, that there is a motive for finding a result. And everybody comes in with a specific result in mind. I've been talking, Dave, I've been bringing up the Osteen report and looking up secondhand smoke stats through SourceWatch and other things. You have to realize, too, though, that tobacco use became so popular because of the advertising of the health benefits of tobacco smoking back in the 19 early early 1900s and it continued on through to the 1950s before there were any any great uh, changes people didn't have a choice for single hand smoking let alone second hand smoking because it was the popular choice of the time and so if you ask somebody like my mother about her opinion on regular smoking and secondhand smoking and the addictiveness of the of the product and what she would think at the age of 71 who has tried to quit probably two or three dozen times and failed and if she would want to have subjected her children to that in the womb which can cause problems and etc cetera, etc cetera, the secondhand smoking very potentially was the cause of the demise of her first child who didn't survive and her third child who was a twin one survived one didn't and that would be considered secondhand smoking because the fetus doesn't I think that's a really horrible thing to try and put on somebody especially since there's no evidence for it you know to to tell someone that your kid died because you smoked this i think is one of the most vile things that the anti-smokers do they claim that sudden infant death syndrome or as it's called in britain uh, cop death yeah, is is the cause of is caused by secondhand smoke, and it's disgusting that anybody would put something like that on a parent. Um, well, no, I'm not saying that they put that on a parent. I don't know if they've done studies on how much secondhand smoke a fetus receives, but it's within the body and their shared systems, and so there's going to be a greater risk than say walking into your local pub and having the choice to leave. So I think that it goes a little bit beyond whether or not a, a, a judge can can prove that their epidemiology was close or so far away from the truth. I think that there was a total shift in thinking when 
more of the facts came in about how regular smoking affected most people in North America and Europe and whoever did smoke. And I think that evidence is what led to the secondhand smoking um, change because you're right, there had to, there was a shift in thinking and a shift in the propaganda from being pro-tobacco to being anti-tobacco, but that doesn't stop millions upon millions of people from smoking anywhere around the world. And different parts of the world have different feelings about smoking. France, you can go anywhere in France and watch the chef as he dangles a ash above your cooking and talk to them about the effects of smoke and secondhand smoke, and I'm sure that they'll have a different opinion culturally. They've banned smoking in a lot of cafes and things in, in France. Uh, this this banning of smoke because of secondhand smoking has spread all over the world. And it's actually it being recalled by in, some, in some areas, too. Where is it being recalled? Uh, I think the last one I read about was in Germany and uh, I forget the other country. There was, uh, I think it might have been Ireland where they decided to be lenient because there are so many bars whose only employees are the owner. I think that you also have to take into consideration that I think it's also appropriate places for bands, right? Like Corey was pointing out that in Manitoba, the very first ban of smoking was in an arena where a hockey player was in a hockey arena where a young boy had an anaphylactic reaction to the amount of cigarette smoke in the arena because there was so much of it, he had a severe asthma attack and died. What kind of parent takes an asthmatic kid into a smoky environment? But what kind of parent um, when there's no choice? There's no choice to be in a non-smoking arena at that point because every arena is smoking. Therefore, your choice is to play hockey in that arena, which is smoky, and um, have that risk, or not play hockey. A good point is raised, and that is the, uh, the responsibility of parents. Around the time that I discovered the Forces website, I, I began to email a lot of places that I believed to be a farce. There was the, the truth, whatever they were calling themselves, where they were... Yeah, they're, they're, they're vile. Yeah, I mean, they parade themselves on TV in these commercials as if they're some kind of rebel, when there's nothing rebellious about, you know, blowing on the trumpet of the empire that's telling you what you're supposed to do. And it's what they're selling you're supposed to do is not smoke. And so this company gets a lot of young young people, teenagers, people that look urban to go in and, and harass the smoking companies. And I'm not sticking up for the big tobacco, of course. I'm simply trying to say what they're representing themselves as. Is, it's kind of like that, uh, that hillbilly comedian who tries to pretend that he's just a regular redneck, but he's a multimillionaire. And, you know, there's a lot of posing that, that goes on. And so I, I emailed them a couple different times, and I'm going to share one thing with you because my point is made about parenting. The uh, initial email that I sent to them, why the half-truths? In an ideal society, I feel people would be given the actual facts. These facts would be offered from an authority that bases its research not on agendas, but on the desire for the whole truth. Why is the whole truth such a feared thing in this country? The truth about marijuana, let's say, is not that it is a bad thing, as every government-funded organization would have the less educated belief. It is an inanimate object. It doesn't do anything on its own. We always end up with the onus of responsibility. We as individuals. It is not a wholly good thing either, as many potheads would have the rest of their flock believe. Is objectivity a completely lost cause in our world? I speak about marijuana in this letter because it is a specific issue, and I wouldn't expect anyone to read the entire letter on what I have to say about the drug hypocrisy in America. But it 
If it is of any interest to the person who reads this, I am very curious to hear what someone involved with the propaganda of the drug consciousness in America has to say about this topic. I can assure you that I have no agenda other than finding the truth, not only in this matter, but in life. And if I were presented with a more evolved way of thinking, which meant that I had to alter my way of thinking currently, I would accept this change graciously. So they write back and they basically said, you don't need to write us about marijuana, we're, we're only talking about tobacco here. So I write back and say, I was using it as an example, I'm sorry if that confused you. I was making a point about parenting. Now, we, we are responsible for our lives. It is our responsibility to, to make our lives go the way we want it to be. And as far as smoking goes, you know, long before an addiction happens or a, a, a lung has to be removed, a decision is made. Why is there? Why is all this attention and energy not going towards poor decision making uh, or towards poor parenting, which allows people to lose the cultural holes? When drugs first became uh, an interest of mine when I was a teenager, my mom immediately, having taken drugs herself as a hippie, sat me down and wanted to make sure that if I was going to be curious about these things, that I explored them in a safe manner. So because of that, I never really rebelled in drugs. I never really went overboard with any of them because I was just trying to experience things. I wasn't trying to show mom what I could do. So I think parenting is a, is a very good point to bring up with smoking. Matt, did you have anything to add your perspective on smoking or secondhand smoke? Well, I always felt that the secondhand smoking um, information was kind of pushed, pushed a little bit to... Um, I mean, I thought it was somewhat fair. I mean, but I, I sensed that it was pushed a little bit to try to curb smoking, like like it was a little bit of um, propaganda. And not to go off subject here, but uh, I just ordered um, the electronic cigarette by Blue B L U. Mm -hmm. I guess one of the more popular ones right right at the moment. But um, interested to see how that goes because uh, we had been talking about that seven eight years ago. I have one of those sitting on my desk right now. Not that brand, but a different brand. I like it. It's uh, it's it's a way to smoke without without all the side effects of uh, of tobacco, uh, of, of inhaling tobacco. But actually, they, that that brings up a good point. Here we have the electronic cigarette spits out water vapor, which looks like smoke and feels like smoke in your lungs, because part of smoking is the ritual of it. And so it can satisfy you as a smoker. But we're seeing legislatures passing laws against that in public places. There's absolutely no possibility that this water vapor, which just dissipates in the air, leaves no smell, leaves no nothing, uh, can cause any harm to anybody. And yet, was it Ohio? Oh, some it, it, we're starting to see this. The FDA is getting all upset about it. One of the nicotine, the primary nicotine nannies, John Basnoff, is preparing a class action suit on it. And there are legislators now banning them, which proves beyond any doubt that this is not about secondhand smoke. This is, again, about not even wanting anyone to see somebody else smoking and making smokers into pariahs. Here we have something that is effective in that it satisfies the nicotine craving, 
it is safe in that it cannot affect anybody around you. And yet the, uh, the anti-tobacco, the anti-smoker forces are fighting it tooth and nail. Why? It's a great question. I think change is frightening, right? I think it's actually simpler. I've been dealing with these people sometimes one-on-one. These people hate smokers. They hate smokers like the Klan hates black people. So where does and, that come from? Well, I don't know. I think there's, there's, there's basically two ways that you can feel good about yourself. And one is to go out there and accomplish things and do things and then say, oh, look what I did. Look what I accomplished. And the other is to look down on people. That used to be, it used to be acceptable to look down on people because they were a different race. It used to be acceptable if they were gay or um, they had a particular religion or whatever. There's all these reasons that you could look down on people. I am superior to you because I am a white heterosexual and you are a black homosexual. Therefore, I am better than you. None of that is socially acceptable anymore. So now you've got to find another reason to hate people. There are some people that, that are involved in the, in the movement that are, are you know, truly concerned and, and uh, they really think they want to help people. But most of the people that I've dealt with, I mean, I, I, I've dealt one-on-one with James Repace, who has made hundreds of thousands of dollars being an anti-smoker and, and supplying uh, the anti-smoking movement with some of the most ridiculous studies you've ever seen. Uh, he's the guy that claims that you need 300-mile-an-hour winds to clear the smoke out of a of a smoking room so ventilation can't work. A lot of the folks who are, are involved in this, there's basically two motivations, and, and one of them is pure, unadulterated hatred. The other, of course, is money. Uh, you got people like Stanton Glantz, who has brought in tens of millions of dollars in studying fees, for his university in uh, Berkeley in California. You've got the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation, which is the charity arm of Johnson & Johnson. And they're always, they like to very quietly behind the scenes fund smoking bans and increase taxes. Because every time that that happens, there will be some people that quit or try to quit. And when they try to quit, they typically use Nicotrol and the the patches and the lozenges and the inhalers and the breakfast cereals and the you know all the other things that they have, which are insanely profitable. And Robert Wood Johnson is 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 funding this at arm's length away from Johnson and Johnson. That's a connection that has has never been explored by the mass media, and it's a very very profitable thing for them to do because their their funding comes from $5 billion worth of Johnson & Johnson stock. Uh, that's billions with a B. You know, whenever a band goes in in East Podunk and somebody says, well, I'm going to go to the drugstore and I'm going to buy this uh, pack of uh, nicotine gum for $40 for, for 100 sticks, the Johnson & Johnson is pocketing, you know, probably... $25 in profit on that, easily. Uh, and and that goes into their dividends, which goes into Robert Wood Johnson's uh, uh, accounts. So, yeah, there's a huge amount of money now in the anti-smoking movement. 
and that is is one of the motivations. But when you when you're dealing with just your garden variety nicotine nanny, I find in a lot of cases they're just losers who need people to look down on, and uh, looking down on smokers is socially acceptable. Colleen had asked, uh, you know, what about the additive in cigarettes? And she asked if they were transparent about that. The other thing is, uh, there was a study that a friend of mine told me about in 1999 that he chewed tobacco, I chew tobacco currently, and did then. And he read this study by a, a pretty esteemed journalist. His name is Ronald, I don't know how to, how to pronounce it, K-O-T-U-L-A-K is his last name. The study is titled, Everyone is Genetically Vulnerable to Addiction. And basically, he's trying to say that that people are genetically dis, uh, disposed to either being having like addictive genes or non-addictive genes. And this would explain why we all have stories of, you know, someone ha- has a grandmother that lived till she was 150 and she smoked since she was two years old. And there are other stories you hear of people who smoked for two years and then immediately got lung cancer. And so this study... Uh, was attempting to make sense of that and kind of did. Any thoughts on that, on genetically being predisposed to addiction or not? I don't know enough about it to say. There's a huge amount of variability from individual to individual. The fact that, you know, Grandma lived to 92 and smoked a pack a day, you, you can't use that to say, well, everybody should smoke any more than you can say, oh, the guy who died of lung cancer at 45, I don't think you can say, oh, nobody should ever smoke. Uh, they're, they're two extremes, and I don't think either of them are really quite lined up with reality. Well, on that line, don't you think that that is really the position of the anti-secondhand smoke movement, is that there is no predictable amount of tobacco ingestion with all of the chemicals that they've added that would make it safe for everybody? And that would be why the protection of all over the sickness of few kind of took precedence. When you look into the science behind secondhand smoke, it simply doesn't stand up. Because it is it was basically meta-analysis. Well, let me correct that, because it's not all meta-analysis. There's also something called publication bias, which says that if you do a study uh, and it shows that there is no correlation between cause A and effect B, it's very unlikely to even get published. Or if it gets published, it takes four or five years to get it published. Whereas if you find that there's a 20% correlation, which again is below what epidemiology can measure accurately, uh, that will get published. And then the media will pick up on it. And journalists are generally pretty ignorant of statistics and just tend to parrot whatever is fed to them. There are a lot of individual studies. Meta-analysis is one of the favorite ways of uh, when you have a lot of studies that are, are on both sides of the fence because the results are so close to zero, then you can use meta-analysis to cherry-pick all the ones that are positive. And you can always find reasons to reject the study because it's not possible when you're studying human behavior to get 100% accuracy. So we can say, well, this one wasn't accurate, this one wasn't accurate, oh, this one was good. And you can cherry-pick all the ones that you want and then basically throw them in a blender and pull out any numbers that you like. And that's what's done with meta-analysis. So I, anything that's meta-analysis, anything that says, uh, and it won't always be defined that way, 
anything that says a study of studies or, uh, you know, looked at a group of studies on any subject, not just tobacco smoke, any subject, uh, you should pretty much just say, no, thanks. Just it's garbage and, and, and get rid of it. All of this attention on cigarettes and not having critical analysis on it by most of the population. What if we were to put that energy into something that was actually truly productive or if the concern truly was about health, then why is it taking us so long to look at healthcare industry outside of the insurance company's ideas of what health should be like? And why are we not doing more about our fast food nation? What about the studies that have shown that being so judgmental is, is harmful for your endorphin levels? I mean, why all this attention on on something that is generally unresolved as an argument? Well, I mean, that's always a question. How are you going to spend your resources? Probably the least understood part of economics is opportunity cost. Simply put, if I spend uh, $15 on a pizza, I don't have $15 that I can spend on a CD. It applies to everything, including time and energy. Uh, if you have a billion dollar, a multi-billion dollar now anti-smoking energy, what's the opportunity cost of that? What good could have been done with that as opposed to, to the damage that's been done by it? That's always a question that's ignored. You say, well, you know, we're going to do this, it's going to cost that. Well, wait a second. What's the opportunity cost of that? You could have taken that time and that energy and that effort and used it to do something actually productive that would actually be good for people as opposed to something that merely strokes your ego and makes you feel like you're doing some good when, in fact, what you're doing is you're, you're creating divisions in society, you're creating measurable and demonstrable economic harm, uh, and most importantly you are attacking and destroying liberty. I think what you're saying about presenting the facts to everyone, all sides of the story, uh, so that people can make an informed decision is definitely important. Um, your facts coming to me towards the studies on non-smoking or, or secondhand smoke, although I, I think it's great that there are studies out there finally that have, have some sort of a result is great, but I think that personal experience will always uh, supersede any type of study, scientific or not, done. Everybody's going to have what their personal experience of one thing is, and that's definitely subjective, and that will never change. I think in general, if, if the world were more transparent and it wasn't so money-driven, and you brought up pharmaceutical involvement, Dave, which definitely can also... Uh, illuminate a lot to the government's decision to back that kind of an opinion because if your pockets are being padded by people then you're certainly going to take their money and take their opinion. I find it really unfortunate is it makes it just all the more difficult to go through the millions of bytes of information that are available and decipher out of that what's truth. So it's definitely been interesting. There have been a lot of interesting points brought up but I think the greatest problem with the concept of liberty is that the truth is so very unknown to us because of all of this politics, whether it's to our advantage or to our disadvantage. And I think that it's uh, forums like these that are just going to keep people involved and keep people talking and keep people thinking, which is 
definitely the North America we don't know so well anymore. It wouldn't be good just to think that something has a good benefit for you just because you have some craving or some desire for it. But, I mean, I am a smoker, and uh, I guess I sort of do feel like that is the case a little bit. I mean, I'm more into science now. I don't really believe in intuition. I think it can throw you off as easily as it it can lead you to a correct answer. If you have to take them with the whole package, obviously, you know, you get all the cancerous smoke and everything with it then it's an, it's an easy decision to make if it's healthy or not. But do you know of any benefits that you can say, yeah, in Parkinson's or um, Alzheimer's or memory improvement, anything like that that you could say good about nicotine uh, right now? As far as scientific data goes, there was a study several years ago that found that anyone who had ever smoked for more than three years in their life, and it didn't matter how long ago, uh, was 50% less likely to get Parkinson's or Alzheimer's. I think there's been some more research into it, but not a lot, because you have to look at who's funding the, most of these studies, and they're anti, anti-smoking groups, and they're certainly not going to fund something like that. Usually when you do something like this, you look for biological plausibility. There have been a couple of other studies, and from what I've seen, it does seem to hold up. So nobody really knows why. Doctors are not out there recommending that somebody smoke. Uh, although I, I, there have been a few doctors who said, you know, if somebody's got Alzheimer's and they're in their 70s, since it takes 20 years for smoking to kill you, I might recommend that they take up cigarettes, which would really freak people out. I don't know if any doctor has actually said that or would, would have the guts to say that publicly. There is a benefit to smoking, and the anti-smokers will say, oh, it's terrible, it's an addiction. Nobody, all smokers want to quit. The fact of the matter is, smoking is expensive, it is risky, it is socially less and less acceptable in more and more places. With all of those things going against it, people aren't going to say, hey, I want to smoke, if there is no benefit to it. You're not wired that way. You do things that you either get a real benefit from or a perceived benefit from. The nation's anti-tobacco lobby won another victory today when Congress passed legislation restricting smoking within U.S. borders to a single room in Iowa. Traffic was backed up from Nevada all the way to Iowa as smokers tried to get to the lounge. Smokers from across the country are making the long journey to the 10 by 10 Smokers Lounge in Des Moines, Iowa. I drove all the way from San Francisco just to sneak a smoke in on my lunch break. Supposed to be back at work in 10 minutes. It's a 37-hour drive. 